Amen. So good to see each and every one of you here today. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing upon our time in his word. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you and we thank you for the freedom that we have to join together in your name to worship you. And so we have gathered to worship you, O Lord. We have worshiped you in song and we worship you through our prayers and through our fellowship and we worship you through our looking at the word together. I pray that you would take your word by your spirit and that you would implant it in our heart. I pray that it would make a difference in our lives, that we would apply the things that we learn so that we might live for you and speak for you and give glory to you in all things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, we come this morning to the book of Exodus, and I tell you, in the book of Exodus, especially at the beginning of Exodus, are some of the accounts that uh, mean the most to me. They have made the most impact in me of of many of the accounts in Scripture, and and, uh, I just love what God is doing for the people of Israel through Moses. And we're going to start this series on the book of Exodus today. And I've entitled the message this morning, The Great Deliverer, The Great Deliverer. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapters 1 through 3. Now, if we're going to start considering the book of Exodus, we really have to go back several hundred years, believe it or not, to the time of Joseph. Now, you remember Joseph, right? Joseph was the one, when he was 17 years old, his father showed him some uh, favoritism, if you will, gave him a special coat, and that just drove his brother's crazy. They couldn't stand the thought of his father, of their father blessing this child, Joseph, in the way that he did. He was about 17 years old. They came up with a plot. First, they were going to kill him. And second, they decided, well, it's better for us not to have his blood on our hands. We'll sell him instead. And that's what they did. They sold him. And he became a slave in Egypt. And it was 13 years that passed before God used Joseph's circumstance in order to make him the second in command in, in uh, Egypt. He was second only to Pharaoh. And God used him to bless the people, his family, um, of Israel, the the children of Israel, the families of Israel, to bless them through a time of intense famine. And towards the end of of, uh, Israel's life, or Jacob's life, he brought the family over to Egypt in order to preserve them. About 75 people came from the land of Canaan over to Egypt, and God preserved them for the next several hundred years. You need to be in Exodus chapter 1, This morning, so if you have your Bibles, please turn to Exodus, and I want to read our first verse from chapter 1, verse 7, and this describes what happened to the people of Israel while they were in Egypt. It says in verse 6, and Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation, but, and here it is, the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So not only did they come to Egypt, but God blessed them while they were in Egypt. And that brings us to our first point this morning, that God sees the afflicted. Now, while it was great that the people of Israel prospered like they did, their prosperity actually caught the attention of the Pharaoh. And eventually there came a Pharaoh to the throne who did not know Joseph and who did not know the people of Israel. And he looks at this multitude living in his land and he begins to be afraid. He is afraid that if an enemy were to attack Egypt, which was not an uncommon occurrence in that day, that the people of Israel, being as numerous as they were, would join the enemy 
and be a part of the overthrow of the Egyptian empire. He was afraid for that. And so he began to afflict the people of Israel. Now we don't know how long this affliction went on, but it was some time as they were there. And our point as we consider this is that God sees our affliction. He knows when we are afflicted, just as he knew that the Israelites were afflicted in the land of Egypt. Now, the interesting thing is about this. They were afflicted, but it wasn't because of anything they had done. It wasn't the fault of the Israelites that they were afflicted. It was the persecution of the Egyptians that was the reason for their persecution. Now, not that the Israelites were not guilty of anything. Clearly they were. We're all people, and no one is perfect, and everyone falls short of the glory of God. But as we read this, it is the specific attack or persecution of the Egyptians against the Israelites, that's the problem here. It is not because of the sin of the Israelites that they find themselves being afflicted. And it says in verse 14, so we're in Exodus chapter 1 in verse 14, it says, and they, the Egyptians, made their lives, the Israelites' lives, bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. In numerous verses throughout the first few chapters there, we see that the people of Israel were suffering greatly. They were suffering greatly. And remember, it wasn't because of their sin directly. It was because of the persecution of the Egyptians. And so we see this repeatedly. Now, the most despicable act of persecution against the Israelites was the proclamation or the edict of Pharaoh that the Israelites were to take their boys that were born and throw them in the river and kill them. That is wicked to make such a proclamation. And again, Pharaoh is concerned that if an army were to come in, uh, on the one hand, he's concerned that the nation of Israel with all of these men, they would join and they would fight against them. But even more than that, and I don't think Pharaoh is aware of this, but even more than this, by trying to snuff out all of the male children, he is attempting through spiritual influence. I believe this is a demonic influence here that is going on in Pharaoh's life. He is attempting to snuff out the deliverer that God had promised all the way back with Adam and Eve, the deliverer that God promised to come to this earth. After all, Pharaoh is not the first one to, to uh, give an edict to kill baby children. Herod is going to do the same thing when Jesus is born. So this is despicable, this edict to cast in your sons to the river. Can you imagine being a parent and you give birth to a boy and you know that, oh, you know, this is a boy, oh no, I'm going to have to throw him into the river and kill him. And I can't imagine anybody going through with this. But this is what uh, the oppression, this was, this was an example of the oppression that the people of Israel lived under, under while they were there with Pharaoh. Now, they had to wait a long time for their deliverance. I want to read to you, let me, I think, I, yeah, here we go. I have a verse up here, Genesis, this goes back to Genesis chapter 15. And maybe you can help me turn uh, the slide back there. Genesis chapter 15, there it is, verses 13 through 14. And it says in this passage, this is a, uh, a prophecy given to Abram. Then he, God, said to Abram, Abram, know certainly that your descendants 
will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, that's Egypt, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge afterward. They shall come out with great possessions. Do you see what this period of time of affliction is? It is 400 years. Anybody here suffer for 400 years yet? Not me. That's a long time, isn't it? 400 years. Just to kind of put it in perspective, I want us to consider Jamestown. Have you heard of Jamestown before? Jamestown, has anybody ever visited in Williamsburg? All right, several of you have visited over there in Jamestown. It was settled about 1607. And Kevin, if you could uh, switch to the, there we go. That's a picture of Jamestown. This is an artistic rendering of the Jamestown settlement. In May of 1607. Now imagine yourself in 1607 that you come over and you have hopes of starting a new life, of escaping some of the rigors of your former life, and you believe in God, and you believe that He has led you to get on a ship and to come across the ocean and to settle in Jamestown. Just picture that you are one of those. And so you're all excited to get ready for the trip, and as soon as you step on the boat, things start to go awry. You start to experience trouble, and you cry out to God. You make it across, and you come to Jamestown, and you're still having some trouble, and you're sick all the time, and all these things, and you cry out to God, and He doesn't answer. Not only does He doesn't, He doesn't answer you, He doesn't answer your help for your family, He doesn't help answer your children's help, cry for help, He doesn't answer their children's cry for help, He doesn't answer their children's cry for help. For 400 years, you are having trouble and you're experiencing problems and afflictions and God doesn't do anything. How would you feel? 400 years, 400 years, the people of Israel were afflicted, it says in Genesis, in Egypt. And God didn't do anything. Why did he wait so long now here's this next part could be a sermon all of it all in itself. Go back to the picture, and uh, in this um, crying out to God, why does God wait so long? And I'm just going to run through this for you to consider because all of us are suffering affliction, and it seems like we've cried out to God for so long, and He doesn't seem to do anything. Why? Well, first of all, suffering builds our faith in God. Suffering builds our faith in God. A lot of times we grow in our faith in a way that we would not have grown if we did not suffer. Another reason that God waits so long is that suffering points our need to salvation. By suffering, we see the need, the absolute need to be saved from our sins. Next point, why does God wait so long? Suffering helps us to orient our minds on eternal things rather than on earthly things. A lot of times we're suffering, and we're suffering in the context of our lives here on this earth, obviously. But Jesus wants us to know that there are greater things than our life here. And suffering helps us to look there and to put more and more value on the, the eternal things than on the things that we count so dear in our lives here. Suffering helps us to orient our minds on eternal things rather than on earthly things. And then suffering points to a greater deliverance to come a greater deliverance to come. Think about Lazarus for a moment. You remember Lazarus? He got sick and he died. 
And when he died, they sent message to Jesus, and Jesus delayed coming, and you know, he dies, and Jesus comes, and he's dead. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus works one of the greatest miracles that we see in the gospel, right? And what does he do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. A lot of people who were skeptical about Jesus, when they saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, they believed after that. That was a great miracle that Jesus had performed. But think about this. That Lazarus lived again, he grew old, and he died again. When we consider the, what Jesus is doing and what God is doing in our lives, there is a greater deliverance to come. And that greater deliverance goes beyond our life here and now. It is the hope of eternal life and the hope of resurrection from the dead with a new and glorified body that will live forever and ever. That is a greater deliverance than any healing or any provision that we might experience right here, right now. So suffering points us to the greater deliverance to come. And here is a truth that kind of goes along with that. God works out all things for good. Amen? Do you believe that? That's Romans 8, 28. He works all things out for good. Now, the path to that goodness is often not a path that we would choose for ourselves. You know what I mean? I want all things to work out for good, but I would choose oftentimes a different path than the one that God has me on during my current affliction. He works out all things for good, but His ways are not our ways, and His timing is not our timing a lot of the times. And so we have things to learn. God uses our suffering in order to learn some things about him. And so we see this as God, as God uh, sees our afflictions. He knows what we're going through. You can go back to the point number one here. He knows what we're going through, and he uh, is coming out for us. Now, now listen about this. We're, we're going to be talking about Moses as we go through the book of Exodus. We're going to talk about Moses a lot. But Moses' deliverance was limited. It was limited and it was imperfect. As great as the account of Moses is and the great deliverance that God did through Moses, what Moses did was limited and imperfect. If nothing else, only the people that happened to be alive after 400 years experienced the deliverance. Not all of the people that had died before those people. It was limited and imperfect. But Jesus is the great deliverer. And we're going to talk more about that. So back then, back then in Moses' time, only a few are delivered. But today, all of us are delivered. And he has delivered, Jesus has, those who died during those 400 years in Egypt. He delivers them too if they believe in God. And so Jesus' deliverance is much greater than the deliverance that Moses gave. And so I implore us this morning to turn to Jesus and to fix our eyes upon him. So that's the first point. God sees our affliction. The second point this morning is this. God seeks the afflicted. Not only does he see the afflicted, but he seeks the afflicted. And our point here in this is that as we suffer affliction, that God comes to us in order to save us. He pursues us. He seeks us out. Now, we come to the great story of the, the burning bush. And what, what a fabulous thing that is. It is a pivotal, pivotal moment in the life of Israel. Uh, years ago, there was this animated movie, 
the Prince of Egypt. It was the story of Moses. Anybody remember that? It was at the end of uh, the 1990s. I was young and vigorous, you know, alive and strong. <laughs> I can't believe it was so long ago. That's why I'm saying that. It just seems like it was so long ago. But it was at the end of the 1990s. I had just brought it up to refresh my memory because one of the scenes in the movie just stands out to me. So they depict the bush that is burning, right? So it's, it's burning, and Moses turns to it and gives attention to the bush. And they show the holiness of God in one scene by causing the pebbles on the ground around the bush to be pushed away from the bush. They, they kind of show the holiness of God in, in that way, depicting it that way. And that's just one of the scenes from the movie. I haven't seen it, you know, since 1990-whatever. But uh, that, that uh, uh, scene just kind of stands out to me. It is pivotal. God, the holy God, appears there in the bush before Moses. And he comes there to Moses because he has heard their affliction. He has heard of their affliction. He has heard their cries. And he comes there. At the end of chapter 2, there's this great, there's this great statement. Look at chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. And I'm going to start in verse 23. Colin read these verses during the Bible reading time. It says this, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. Now verse 24 is really powerful. It just kind of jumped out at me as I was reading this. There are four things that God does in verse 4. It says, God heard, they're groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God looked upon the children of Israel, and God knew them. He acknowledged them. He knew them. These four things, these four statements just stand in parallel, one after another, just kind of hitting hard God's response. He heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. And that statement right there just shows that God has come down and He has finally engaged the people after hearing their cry. He has engaged them. So He hears, He remembers, He sees and He knows, and then He does something about it. And this is the great thing about God and His moving in our lives, that when we need help and he decides to engage us, he is the one who is acting and he is the one who brings about his purposes and his plans in our lives. And that's a great thing. And so this bush is burning and God does not say anything. If you read the passage, he does not say anything. He just appears in this burning bush. And it is Moses who first takes notice of what is happening. Let's read verses 4 and 5 in chapter 3. It says in verse 4, So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, that Moses turned aside to look, when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to look at the bush, then he speaks. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses responded, Here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Now this is, this is a great passage because it reveals a whole lot of things. And honestly, as I was preparing this message, I just really struggled as to what to focus on. But one thing that's happening here is that Moses is out in the desert. He's been there for 40 years. 
This is after he flees Egypt by himself, Moses. He flees Egypt, he goes into the desert, and he lives there, this is 40 years before God appears to him in the burning bush. And what God has done is he has come to where Moses is at. This mountain, God didn't lead him to the mountain. This was the mountain where Moses lived by. He was already there. And when God decided to do something, he went there to where Moses was at. And it reflects the fact that God seeks us out. As God continues to talk, he says this in verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now this verse is quoted numerous times in the New Testament. It's this part of the burning bush that's quoted in the New Testament. And Jesus quotes this verse to demonstrate to the people who were skeptical that God is not just, you know, some uh, mythical creature way up there and has nothing to do with us, but that God is a God of the living and that he is a real personal God. I am, Moses is told by God, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am their God, and now I have come to you. I am your God. And this is a powerful statement here. God has come down to deliver. And so what we see is that God has heard the people's prayers, and he has come down to meet them where they're at in order to deliver them. And this is something that we could look forward to because a lot of times this is what happens. We live our lives and we do all these wrong things and we feel so guilty about the bad things that we've done. I don't know. I mean, you might be on drugs, you might be on alcohol, you might be sexually immoral, you might, you know, the list just goes on and on. You might be depressed, you might be discouraged, you might, you know, just struggle. Who? You might struggle with all of the above. You know, it's like more, our struggles tend to be a lot and they weigh on us and we think this. My, bad, my life is too bad for God to do anything about it. I'm just too far gone for God to care when that's not God's heart at all. And so I want to share some verses with you, and I want you to make note of these verses. These are promises, in a sense, that the Scripture gives to us when we are in trouble and we are afflicted. And so the first one is Job chapter 34, verse 28, and it says this, so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him, for he hears the cry of the afflicted. Are you afflicted this morning? It may be because of something you have done. It may not be because of something that you have done. But if you are afflicted, the place to go is to God, regardless, right? Don't let your guilt, don't let your burden, don't let the weight of your affliction keep you from seeking God. Seek him first, always, always. And if you mess up again, seek him again. And if you mess up again, seek him again. And seek him and seek him and seek him. Don't ever stop seeking him, no matter what. The next verse is Proverbs chapter 15, verse 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Now, the wicked don't care to even cry out to God. So the righteous doesn't mean that you have to get your life right before you go to him. The righteous here refers to those who have a heart that is inclined towards God. The next verse is 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, 
that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. And so this here shows that we can go to him and we can have confidence when we ask things according to his will. And some of the things that we ask according to his will is our forgiveness, for example. Our relationship with him. Those are his will. He wants to forgive us. He gave his son so that we might have forgiveness. It is his will to forgive us. He wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to walk close to him. He wants us to succeed and prosper in serving him in this life. He wants these things. They are his will. Therefore, we can come with confidence before him and make our requests known. And so the people cried out. God remembered. He heard them. He saw them. He remembered his promises. God keeps his promises. He saw their affliction. He gave them his attention. And he knew the trouble they were in. And so he moves, and we come to the burning bush. So we bring up this, uh, I have this burning bush picture here, and we come here, and God speaks out of the fire of the burning bush. Isn't this great? Kevin, do we have this burn? There we go. So um, God spoke out of the fire of the burning bush to Moses. What a great thought that God would do this. But there is something amazing that goes on here. If we look at chapter 3, verse 12, it says this, I will certainly be with you, God says, and this shall be a sign to you. A sign. I'm going to do this miracle, this sign, so that you know that I am with you. I, I will, this shall be a sign to you that, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God speaks out of the fire of the bush to Moses. And he says, I'm sending you. And then he says, this is how you know I'm going to be with you. Because when you come back out of Egypt, I'm going to bring you right back here again. And you know what God did when he brought them back? He spoke not only to Moses out of the fire. He spoke to all of the people out of the fire. And this was a fascinating thing. It says this numerous times. The burning bush is just a one-time thing. But this, it says... Numerous times. It says that God spoke to the people out of the fire of the mountain. When God met Moses, it was the bush that was on fire. When God met the people, it was the mountain that was on fire. And it says in Deuteronomy 4.36, Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might instruct you. On earth he showed you his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. Now imagine this. You have this burning bush, which is, I don't know how big, yay big, right? And God speaks to Moses. What a fantastic experience. He goes into Egypt. They, deliver, they are delivered from Egypt. They come back to the mountain, and this time the mountain is on fire. And this time God doesn't speak just to Moses. He speaks to the entire people, and they are afraid. They are warned, don't touch the mountain, because if you touch it, it is holy and you will be killed. Don't touch the mountain. Make a perimeter around it and don't come closer. And the fire burned on the mountain and the lightning struck and the thunder roared and the earth shook. And God spoke to the people. Now if we go to the book of Hebrews, something even more amazing happens. We are, we are just, we just stand amazed at this picture, but there is a greater truth that comes out to us. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 through 24, 
it tells us this. You have not come to the mountain that may not be touched, that burned with fire. You may not come to that mountain. You have not come to that mountain. Verse 22. But you have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. In other words, it takes the mountain experience with Moses and God speaking from the fire of the mountain and it compares that to coming to Jesus. Coming to Jesus is much greater than experiencing God in the burning bush or experiencing God on the mountain. Now we experience God through Jesus Christ and His Spirit lives within us and nothing compares to that. And so when we talk about... When we talk about our salvation, we talk about Jesus, and he is greater than anything that Moses experienced or did. Jesus is our mediator. We come to Jesus. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, this is interesting because we might overlook this, but you'll notice in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses, it says in chapter 3, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now notice this next part. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. The angel of the Lord. And when we consider the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, these seem to be pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. And so it is the angel of the Lord. Maybe it is Jesus himself who is represented in the flame there and speaks to Moses because Jesus is the true mediator. Acts chapter 7 verse 30 reaffirms this point. When 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. It was the angel of the Lord that was there. And when we consider the ministry of Jesus, he has come to seek and to save the lost. I tell you this, that Jesus cares more about our salvation than we often care about our salvation. He is on the hunt for us to turn our lives over to Him. He has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Just as God went to Moses to make Him the deliverer, so he comes, Jesus comes to us to make us his children. And so we have been delivered. They are delivered from their slavery. We are delivered from the bondage of our sins, and we have eternal life. And that brings us to our third and final point this morning, that God, he is the Savior of the afflicted. He sees the afflicted, he seeks the afflicted, and he is the Savior of the afflicted. So we look at Moses, and we see that God was at work in Moses from the time he was born. Now, this is really interesting, and this goes along with the fact that he seeks us. He, uh, even before Moses, you know, Moses was born under this uh, death sentence because, you know, they had to throw all the sons into the, the river. He's born under this death sentence, but he's born, and, uh, you know, his parents, they look at him, and they say, oh, what a beautiful baby. This is such a good-looking baby boy. I'm not throwing him in the river. So they hide him for three months. They, you know, they do the best they, they can. And you know how uh, newborns, when they cry, they have cute little cries. You know, cute. everything is little and cute. You know, you know what I mean? Uh, but it comes to a certain age where the cry just, all of a sudden, it's like vo- the volume just goes up 20 decibel, decibels there. And uh, all of a sudden, it's... Uh, a really big mess to take care of them. All right, I'm exaggerating here a little bit. 
Maybe not, but I don't know. His parents see him. He's a good-looking baby. They decide to hide him instead of throwing him, throw him in the river. And then after three months, when they couldn't hide him anymore, um, his mother does something really ironic. She casts him into the river. Can you believe it? She casts him into the river, except she puts him in a boat that she makes and then throws him into the river. Take that, Pharaoh. And then, in all of the irony that you could muster up, it's Pharaoh's daughter herself who finds him, and she decides, I'm going to take care of him. And so Moses is raised in the very house that the edict to kill all the boys was issued. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house by Pharaoh's daughter. He is raised with Egypt's best. This is all before the burning bush. And at some point, he decides that he is the deliverer. I don't know how he came to that conclusion, but he decided that he was the deliverer. And he took matters into his own hands. And so he sees an Egyptian uh, persecuting a fellow Israelite, and he kills the Egyptian. And the next day, he sees two Israelites fighting. And he goes, and he says, you guys are brothers, you shouldn't be fighting. And they turn on him. Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian yesterday? And at this, by this time, Pharaoh found out that Moses had killed an Egyptian. And Moses took off. And so he lives out there. This is Moses. He thinks he's the deliverer. He tries to deliver in his own strength, but he is weak and imperfect because he truly is not the deliverer. God is the deliverer, and he, Moses, is just God's instrument in deliverance. He has to learn that as time goes on. And so God appears in the bush, and in verse 10, it says, God says to him, Come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so Moses um, decides to go there, but he complains a little bit, and God reveals something amazing to Moses in verse 14, 13 and 14. Then Moses said to him, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God does something amazing here. He reveals himself to Moses in a new way. He said, I am who I am. And he said thus, Thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. All right? So that's a, quite an amazing thing. Now we have here the revelation of the, what's called the Tetragrammaton. So if you can bring up that slide there. On the right side of the slide are the Hebrew letters. In Hebrew, the letters are all consonants. There are no vowels. So this, is, this is the name of God in the Old Testament. Uh, we might transliterate it Y-H-W-H. This is the Tetragrammaton. Tetra for four. Okay? So today... Even when the Jewish people read the Old Testament, whenever they come across the Tetragrammaton, it has no vowel pointings, just these consonants. Whenever they come to that, they do not say the name of the Lord because they have come through their traditions to believe that saying this name would be blasphemous because nobody is good enough to say the name. And so they don't say it. They don't even try to say it. Whenever they come across the Tetragrammaton, they say Adonai. This is another name for God. So they'll be reading in Hebrew and they'll see this and they'll say Adonai. Now, if you take these four letters and you put the vowels of Adonai on them, you get Yehovah. 
So this is where we get Jehovah from, this tetragrammaton with the vowels of Adonai. If, however, you take this tetragrammaton and you put the vowels of the verb to be, which is the basis for this word, you get Yahweh. It's the same word, just with different vowel pointings. So that was our uh, academic lesson for the morning. Uh, In your Bibles, you will see this name, the tetragrammaton, translated with uh, the word Lord in small caps. So if you see capital L and then the small caps O-R-D, that's the translation for, lo, uh, for the tetragrammaton. Uh, this is how G, uh, God reveals himself to Moses, and it has become the name of God. Now, fast forward to the time of Jesus, and this is something fascinating in the Gospel of John, only in the Gospel of John. I'm going to share two instances with you. The first one is in John chapter 8. Jesus has been having this long dialogue with the, um, the Pharisees there. And at the end they say, uh, you know, we belong to God and so on. And Jesus says something remarkable. He says, uh, Abraham rejoiced to see me. That's what he said. So they say this, John chapter 8 verse 57. You are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, and then he says this, I am. And as soon as he said, I am, he was connecting himself to the God who appeared to Moses in the bush, revealing himself to be that God. And they knew it. Because in the very next verse, they take up stones to stone him. Why would they stone him? Because they knew he was claiming to be God, and they picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy. They knew what he was saying. But he hid himself, and he went out of the temple going through the middle of them and passed by. They couldn't do it. Now here's another fascinating passage. Skip from John 8 to John 18. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane. The army has come. The the crowd, the mob has come to arrest him. And Jesus says this, it says this, this is John 18, 4, knowing all things that would come upon him, he went forward and said to the crowd, whom are you seeking? Jesus says. They answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Now get this, and it says Judas who betrayed him also stood with them. When he said to them, I I am, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Now I can just kind of see what happened, you know, and they all stand up and they dust themselves off and they get their weapons again trained on Jesus. But do you see that? He says, I am, and when he says that, boom, they all fell backwards to the ground. Um... You know, when, G- when Peter, I don't know how Peter managed this, he cut out, you know, he pulled out his sword when they came and he cut off the ear of the servant. Uh, Jesus didn't need that. He said, put your sword away. Don't you know I can call 12 legions of angels and they'll come and rescue me? Well, Jesus didn't need the 12, angel- 12 legions of angels either. All he had to do was tell them who he was and boom, that was the end of it. But the point is this. He is declaring himself to be the great I am that appeared to Moses in the bush. And we read in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3, we read this, For this one Jesus, 
has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. This one Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Back then, when God came to deliver the people of Israel, He delivered only a portion. He only delivered a few. Most of them had died prior to the deliverance and never experienced God's deliverance. But now, Jesus has come and He delivers us all. So we might wish that we could experience the events in the time of Moses and be there at the burning bush, and that would still be a great experience, but there is a greater experience that we have the opportunity to engage ourselves in. Jesus has died on the cross for our sins, and his deliverance supersedes all deliverance, and we can ask him for the forgiveness of sins. He will come into our hearts, and he gives us eternal life, life without end. Praise be to Jesus. He is our great deliverer. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, come on up. All you have to say is, Pastor, I want to know Jesus and I'll pray with you. Or maybe you're here and you're backslidden. You haven't been following Jesus. Pastor, I want to get my life right again. You don't have to give me any details or anything like that. Just say, Pastor, I want to get my life right. I want to get back on track and I'll pray for you. And if you're here and you're afflicted with anything and you'd like prayer, we will go to Jesus in prayer and we'll ask for his deliverance. Let's stand as we sing our final song.